what is your primary preoccupation right now? What's going on in your heart, mind, and soul? You wake up in the morning, it's the thing that overwhelms you, it's the the knot in your stomach, the first thought that pops into your head, it's the to-do list, it's the fear, it's the worry. It might be COVID, it might be health-related, it might be relationship-related, it might be financially, it might be your job, it might be litigation. We live in a, a strange time where litigation is more common than perhaps it should ever have been. Um, but we have this thing, a lot of us have this thing, sometimes things, that the moment there's a vacuum in our thinking, it preoccupies us. Raising children, uh, children that have broken your heart, children that are far from the Lord, that are far from a family, uh, on and on we could go with this list. What is your preoccupation? What overwhelms you? In the human condition, let me give you a cheery Michael Easley word, you're always going to have something that's going to be your preoccupation. It's the way we're wired. It's part of our fallen nature and part of just who we are. We're always going to have something that is going to be the thing. And uh, if you heard Dr. Dave Gibson a couple of weeks ago, I so appreciated his message. You know, if, if I get this, then my life will be okay. And there's always a new set of things that if you get or if it's accomplished or if it's resolved, another new thing or things will quickly come into play. The letter, the book of Hebrews uh, as I went through this again and again, if you're new to Stonebridge, um, I've done something I've never done before. I'm teaching one book of the Bible each Sunday. It's, a, it's an impossible task. In a way, it's a fool's errand, but I'm almost done, so I'm going to finish it. Um, so we're looking at one book per Sunday, and the task for me has been, again, for those who might be new, I'm not trying to do the author, the date, the time, the location, the recipients, all the typical things that you can find in any number of books. I'm trying to ask and answer if maybe I don't know the Bible really well or I haven't read or studied that book in detail, what are some highlights, some observations, some main themes that we could all benefit from? So this is far from inclusive or exhaustive. It's just a high, high-level survey, and I'm asking the question, perhaps pretentiously, okay, Lord, what, what do we need, what do I need reminding of as I go through these surveys, these high levels? David Peterson wrote, at first glance, Hebrews appears to be one of the most difficult New Testament books to understand. I don't think that's too far off. Hebrews includes many Old Testament quotations and allusions along with great detail, I would say tremendous detail, around Israel's priesthood and sacrificial system. We also encountered the so-called warning passages, which scholars and students and new Christians read with fear and terror and confusion and argument and dividing lines over what these passages are truly about. But if we just quit or stop because we were frustrated or it didn't make sense, we're going to lose so much more. It's a beautiful text it's not merely deep and complex, it's rich and rewarding, but it requires a persistent reading, which is true of all Scripture. Um, some of you are familiar with the great teaching company, great courses. I'm a bit of an addict. I buy all these courses and I listen to them in the morning when I shave and shower. I can't do the news anymore, so I listen to things. And some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's eh, whatever. Uh, I just finished a course on C.S. Lewis. I just started a new course on uh, John Milton. Oy. Um, but 
the reason I do this is because I don't want to stop thinking. As we get older, we stop thinking. And we live on our laurels. It's a very dangerous thing. And when it comes to Scripture, it requires a persistence, a stick to that you continue to read, get your nose in the book, I encourage you on a daily basis. Well, careful readers of this letter, this book to the Hebrews, will find a, a miraculously, beautifully woven structure in the text. Um, it provides what I would argue is an integration of Old Testament theology and New Testament Christology in a way no other book does. Now that's an that's a over-the-top statement, but I, I think it's true. It incorporates an Old Testament theology and a New Testament Christology, it puts those things together that's unique in our Bible. Because the, the multitude of references, the author goes back to the Old Testament and how he speaks of the superiority of the personal work of Christ is not, I mean you can find it throughout the Bible, but no author has put it in one book. A.T. Robertson wrote Hebrews is called an epistle, and so it is, but it's a peculiar kind. He said, in fact, it's like a treatise it proceeds like a sermon, and it concludes like a letter. And again, one of the unique observations that other scholars bring. The result of the letter, the book to Hebrews, is an insight and clarity into the person and work of Jesus Christ that I think, I don't like to ever modify the word unique. You should never modify unique. It's not very unique. Unique is one of a kind. So be careful when I say this, but I do believe it is unique in how the author portrays the superiority of the words and works of Jesus Christ. If you've heard me teach over the years, you know I am a broken record when I talk about the words and works of Christ. That's not just a cliche, that's just not an oh by the way throwaway term. You must needs, I must needs understand, it's not just what he said but what he did. If we study only what he said in absentia with what he did, we don't get the full picture of the God-man. If we only focus on what he did, not what he said, we don't get a full picture of the God-man. And Hebrews does a remarkable job of what Christ said and what Christ did. One of the revolutionary things for me in my growth as a Christian, many, many years ago, uh, Dr. Hendricks uh, was teaching through the Gospels, and he, he told us, he goes, he, sorry, it was all milk class. I know it's, um, today it's sexist. He said, men, we were men, so men, uh, study what Jesus did in the Gospels, not merely what he said. It was a game changer for me. Because I was a you know, Greek and word study guy and syntax and get into the details. I love that puzzle. You know, look at what he did, when he did it. Why did he do this? And that's when the gospel started to just blow my mind because he's the always intentional, always deliver, never, oh, by the way, Jesus, let's go to Samaria today. I think it'd be a nice to go to Samaria. There was always a plan. He was always intentional. And so to, to understand the words and the works of Christ, the author of Hebrews does with a clarity to describe the God-man in some unique ways. To say another way, I don't think the believers can ever overstate the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you were to look at salvation history or the timeline of the work of Christ in our place on our behalf instead of us in perfect obedience to his Father. That's, in a nutshell, the letter 
the book of Hebrews. Let's jump into chapter 1, the first four verses, and make some few com- a few comments about this. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 of the book of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So much in these four verses. I just want to make some high-level observations. Number one, God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways. Just think through what you know of the Old Testament, whether it was a major, meaning a, a large body of information, or a minor, a shorter book, prophet. Just think of the prophets and what they said about this Jesus. Think of passages you know very well, Isaiah 53. Think of passages like the New Covenant and Joel. Think about these concepts of what the prophets are telling us about this Jesus. And the author is saying, God gave us a lot of information in many portions, in many ways, over all this time. But recently, let's say in the first century, in these last days, he's spoken notice to us in his son. So when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, of course we have the, let's say, 32-some years. We don't know much about him. We have the birth narratives and what surrounds that. We have a little insight into what he was probably in his 12, about 12 years of age. And then it goes quiet until we we call it the so-called public ministry. And when Christ is then introduced in this public ministry and Fitting that we talk about this today, perhaps, because this week leading up to his crucifixion, this so-called Passion Week. By the way, passion does not mean excitement and your passion and your heart's passion. Passion means the brutalization, suffering of Christ. It's the passion of Christ. So he spoke to us long ago. He spoke about these covenants. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the Davidic covenant. I take you back to 2 Samuel 7 again and again and again and again and again and again and again. You need to understand these covenants at some level that there will be a Messiah on the throne of David forever. 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 And that is our Jesus Christ. Um, I had a professor named Dr. Norman Geisler. Some of you know the name. He's with the Lord now. he was, he was never, um, let's say, he wasn't afraid of controversy, which I always, I always like a man or a woman who can you know, fight the good fight, so to speak. He wouldn't agree with everything Dr. Geisler said. But he had this way of talking about Christ that was a little different framework than maybe the standard evangelical fundamental Bible-believing Christian might think about Jesus. And he used this argument, uh, this theological construct I won't bore you with, but he used this argument that he said, Think of man's objection to God. That God does something and man says, now wait a minute. And he started with Adam. He goes, think of what Adam might have said fictitiously. Well, well, God, you didn't explain to me what dying you will die really meant. I mean, if if you'd have told me that in the garden, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. 
I sure wouldn't let her her eating the fruit. I mean, if you'd explain that to me, and so God would say, I'll tell you what, that's done. The fall has happened. I'll give you 10 commands. I'll flesh it out a little bit. I'll give you 10 things. And I'll put them in do's and don'ts to make it easy for you, Adam. And going forward, of course, Israel's going to fail systemically with the Ten Commandments. And so a man would say, well, God, you know, if you would have explained those in more detail, if you'd have outlined what it means to commit adultery, if you'd have given us a list about no gods before you, if you'd have explained that to us a little better, tell you what, I'll give you statutes, I'll give you principles, I'll give you laws galore. And some will count 300, some laws, some will count 600, some laws and statutes, doesn't matter. But there are a lot of them, let's just say for conversation's sake. Well, then man would say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was too complicated. That's what you asked for. It was too complicated. And you gave us all these kings and judges, and they were a disaster. You know, if you came down here and explained it to us, then we'd listen to you. God says, all right. I'll send the Son of God to God, man. He'll tell you everything you need to know. And you'll kill him. Whoa, okay, Lord, we made a big error. That was a bad one, we get it. But here, here's the real deal, God. If you'd have come and been a literal king, not this metaphorical king thing he talked about, the kingdom is here and the Davidic kingdom. If you'd been a literal king on a literal throne, eternally reigning with an army and executing justice and suppressing evil, and then we'd believe you. And depending on your millennial view, God says, I'll tell you what, I'll put him on a literal throne for a thousand years. And you still won't believe him. The author of Hebrews is saying in these first verses, God spoke again and again to the fathers of the prophets in these last days in his son, which is a beautifully fitting frontspiece introduction to this whole letter, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You and I need a complete recalibration of what it means to understand who this Jesus is. The author says he is the exact representation. Look at verse two, 3 again. He is in the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. It's a wonderful term that Bible nerds do deep dives into. It's the Greek word caricature, which we bring into English, character. He's the character of God. Remember when the what would Jesus do bracelets and all the, the forgive me, nonsense went, went around the country? We had a bookstore in the church that we were a part of in, in Northern Virginia, D.C., and they had all the what would Jesus do stuff, and I would just shake my head. Uh, and I thought, you know, we, we should have a new marketing team and say, WWJT, what would Jesus think? What would he think about what we're doing? What would he think about our lives and activities? And if you want to know what God thinks, look at Jesus Christ. How often have we been in conversations when people would say, you know, if I could just talk to God, if I could have if coffee with God, and God would answer some of my questions, and the pretentious person I can be says, you, you got it. Just look at what Jesus says and what he does. 
Well, I want to know what God's opinion is on X. Well, just look at what Jesus Christ says and what he does. Well, what about injustice and children dying and AIDS and COVID and the border? Just look at what Christ has said and what he's done. He is the exact representation of the glory of God. Moses got to see sort of this departing image of God and what the Shekinah, the Epiphany, whatever language you want to amend to it, as God moved from him, no one can see him and live. And we really don't know what that means. I think what it means, just a total theological guess, is that if you saw God, you, you would no, no longer exist. The human frailty of this fallen shell cannot face the eternal. And until we have this eternal construct he's designed for us in the new heavens and once we die as believers we can't handle that much holiness and perfection and justice even the man he called Moses his choice servant he is the exact representation of his nature to put a fine point on it you want to see God spend more time looking at the words and works of Jesus you want to know what God thinks about your life, your money, your marriage, your parenting, your troubles, spend more time looking at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I, I don't, you know, I don't like to fight, pick fights or cause fights, but I am so disappointed and disenchanted in the fixation on numbers and tests and inventories and spiritual formation gurus to tell me a word or phrase to which to align my life, I caution you from the soles of my feet, run away. I'm not going to go out and bash names. That's not who I am. I'm not saying there's no value in those assessment tools. I'm not saying that. You put that assessment tool ahead of the words and works of Christ, you're off kilter. You're out of alignment. I don't say this to make you mad or to stir you up. I say it as a person who loves you and cares about you. Get your head out of the sand and get in the book. Because what happens, I've lived long enough to know this, these trends and isms all change. They they have about a decade or at most a 30-year cycle, and then they're gone. I remember taking the FIRO B and the MMPI and the uh, Strong's Inventory Analysis and uh, the DISC. I used to actually do the DISC in, in small group settings with Ken Vogus, who's Christie's dad. Did this beautiful thing where he took the Bible characters and ran them through the DISC and said, well, just look at their behaviors and what they did and what they said. And Ken would always caution, do not put this above the Scripture. Do not put this above what the Word says. This is simply an analysis tool to tell you what might motivate you or how you're wired. How many times have I used Floyd Sharp's illustration? Every person's fingerprints are unique. Why in the world will we try to put personality in a box with a certain set of numbers and secondaries and tertiaries on it? You are made in the image of God. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God the Father. Why would you need a guru? I'm not saying we don't need discipleship. We do. I do. 
I continue to seek out men older than me and wiser than me. <laughs> this week, I can't tell you, I, this is not hyperbole. Probably six men I spoke to that are my age-ish, and we're all asking the same questions. How and when do you land a plane? When do you step away? When do you, quote, retire? When do you recalibrate? And you know, none of us have a good answer. None of us. Now, there's easy answers. There's, frankly, some real fun, selfish answers. But as we'll see in this book, we persevere. We fight the good fight. We don't lose heart. My life is not my own. I don't, you know, maybe you're mad at me. Maybe you're going to go away. That's between you and Christ. If Christ upholds all things by the word of his power, you don't need some test. Yes, it might help you. Yes, it might identify. And, and don't hear me wrong. I'm not anti-Christian counseling. I, I had lunch today with a Christian, oh, this week with a Christian psychiatrist. Boy, I grew in appreciation for his ministry and practice, like hugely. And I'm not easy to impress. And I think there's good value if I've got a biblical theological foundation on what I'm trying to accomplish when I'm helping somebody who's hurting. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. But don't let your personality or your passion or your interest or your preoccupation define you. What I asked when we started this, what's your preoccupation? Do not let that define you. Let your relationship with Christ define you. Only way you can do that is by spending time in his word. Look at his words. Look at his works. How many times am I going to say it? God's word, God's spirit, God's people. You need those strengths to help you as you and I grow in faith and following. Our problems are not outside Christ's awareness. The problem is we make our problem more important than anything else. That's human nature. When I wake up with a knot in my stomach, when you wake up with something that jumps into your brain and makes you start sweating, and I know I'm the only one in this room that does this. You wake up at four, that thought overtakes you, you may as well get out of bed, right? Because you're not going to go back to sleep. And so you get up and you get going, and God gave us two wonderful things, caffeine and oxygen. This is your oxygen. And I often pejoratively say I need caffeine before I can take oxygen, but that's just my personal problem. If you and I don't understand that he's a sovereign creator and sustainer, he's the exact representation of his Father's glory, if we don't understand that, we've despised the Savior. If you know Christ, if you have a relationship with him, you heard his word, you trusted in him. You have, quote, seen what he's done through his word. But we always temper experience. Experience has no authority. Person comes to Christ. Person grows in their marriage. Person gets realigned with whatever. We praise God for that because God's word and God's spirit are working among us. Do not elevate the experience to your authority. Elevate God's word to the authority. Always, always, always. The first century believers that that the author is writing here had some connection to this angelic intermediary thing. And let me just read a couple of verses here. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay it much closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away. You could say that today. You, you have to pay attention to what you've heard. 
I've told you this many times before, a dear friend of mine who happens to be a Christian psychiatrist, and you can be a Christian and a psychiatrist, uh, he said to me, Michael, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Now, as dumb as that sounds, that was illuminating to me. Because if you're not paying attention to what you're paying attention to, that thing that is your preoccupation controls you. Why is that thing controlling me? The fear of money, the fear of my marriage, the fear of litigation, the fear of your children who may or may never not come to you or come back or come back or come trust Christ. I mean, those things are perilous preoccupations that probably everyone in this room has had something that when you wake up, it overwhelms you. It eats you up. How much good does it do to dwell on it? So what we do is we try to fix it. Um, can I say a corollary? The more attention you pay to the world's assessment, the more you will drift from Christ. The more time you spend with your magnificent preoccupation, you will drift from Christ because you're paying attention to that. I have, the same, I have the same challenge, men and women. I'm not above this. I can get sucked into problem A, and I wake up and go to sleep and talk about problem A. And it may take a day or two for the Holy Spirit to knock me on the head, McFly, McFly, and say, easily, wake up. You have put your affection on the wrong thing. You need to put your affection on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You need to put your focus on his authority. Pay much closer attention to what you have experienced, to what you feel, to what you think is true, what you've heard. From chapter 2, he takes a, a deep, deep dive into the superiority of Jesus Christ as the ultimate high priest. Uh, this is a theological construct. If you understand the time and manner which God spoke, if you understand Christ is the exact representation of all that you need in his words and works, then when you go forward, he's your high priest. He is your intercessor. It's a pretty logical flow. How did we hear about this? We would say from time immemorial. Who told us? Prophets, psalmists, writers, all the experience of the Old Testament biographies, if we just looked at that information. He came as a real man, born of a virgin, under the law at the proper time. He introduces himself, eternally existent. He becomes incarnate. Never figure it out. doesn't matter. We take it by faith. We have this exact representation. We have an intermediary and he's the high priest. Chapter 2, verse 20, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. What's the author saying? He had to be, quote, human so we would relate to him. Not that he relate to us. So we wouldn't look at him and say, well, you don't have the problems I have. Well, I'll be the God-man. Again, attention we're never going to resolve, but that's what the author's saying. Look at the purpose clause, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the God-man shows up, and he's going to make 
propitiation. Some of your Bibles use the word atonement. That's a good uh, substitute. It's not the same word. Uh, propitiation really means to wipe the slate clean. Atonement has more of the idea of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This is a bit of a fine hair that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, par- parsing here, but I do think it's a different concept. He wipes out the sin of the people by propitiation. He covers your sin and mine. He pays for your sin and mine through his atoning work on Calvary. Put it real simply, he wipes out your sin. That's what the author's saying. He was a faithful high priest to make propitiation for our sins. This is how he's superior. Well, we must move. Chapter 4 is more about this great high priest. Chapter 4, 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This passage overwhelms me in a lot of ways. He's not an also ran. He's not an angel. He's not some prophet. He's not an intermediary in the sense that that group of people were thinking. He's the high priest. He's the perfect intermediary. And he came for us. Look at three observations from this. First of all, advocacy. Hold fast to your confession. In broad terms, a confession is what we believe. We think of confession as making confessions of our sin. That's certainly part of what it means uh, 1 John 1, 9. But a confession or a confessional in the sense is, this is what I believe. We've, we sing some hymns that are confessional. To some degree, the Word of God is a confessional hymn. You're, this is what I believe. When you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, said the words, knelt by your bed as a five-year-old boy or girl, your youth leader led you to Christ, whatever language you want to attach to that, when you put your faith in Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, that he died in your place on your behalf instead of you. That he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the third day, he overcomes death, he pays for your sin and mine. When you embrace the personal work of Jesus Christ, you're saved, we say. That's your confession. Know what you believe. That doesn't change. Certainly there are churches and theologies that teach you can lose your salvation. Not to sound arrogant, that's not what the Bible says. And part of Hebrews is very clear on that. Hold fast to what you believe. Why is this important? Because when you and I get off in the ditch, when our magnificent preoccupation pulls us away, can I be so unkind to say, when you're living in sin to the point you can't see the way back, you can't see clearly, you got to remember what you believed. And it's that benchmark, that whetstone that you sharpen your theology on, you come back to and you say, Wait, wait, wait. This is what I believed. And of course we can have this conversation about did you truly come to faith or not? And sometimes that's an important discussion to have. And there's nothing uh, embarrassing or ashamed, ashamed, shameful to say, I don't know that I truly trusted Christ and I need to metaphorically walk that out, pray that prayer again in the sense that I need a benchmark. You've heard me talk about benchmarks. You need a benchmark. Do you know that you know that you know, 
that you know when you trusted Christ. Because the moment you did, you were indwelt by His Holy Spirit. And the only part of sanctification I think is somewhat uh, where we play a part, if you will, I use that in quotes, is I agree with the Spirit to control my life, not wait for Him to give me some new insight. Because as we sang, the Word of God is our authority, not our experience. Secondly, draw near. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in time of need. Um, draw near, by the way, for you preset BSF Bible nerds like me, um, draw near is a great rabbit trail Bible study for you to do five times it occurs in the book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful study. Draw near with confidence. What happens when the preoccupation comes? What do we typically do? Maybe not in this order. A, we, consider our, we, we consult with ourselves. What am I going to do? When it gets really bad, we call a friend or an attorney or a board or a council or an elder or we, call, we reach out for help. And then third, what might we do? We might get, you know, some professional group to come in and help us. I don't know. What do you do when the preoccupation strikes? Draw near. Draw near. Do you know what you believed? Draw near. Thirdly, receive mercy and find grace. Receive mercy and find grace. Does it say he will fix it? Nope. But you'll have mercy and you'll find grace. Several years ago when Sydney and I lived in Chicago, and those of you that don't know me, I don't like to be defined by it, but I live with chronic pain. I've had five back surgeries, wah, 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 get over it. Um, when I was facing a surgery in Chicago, it was a very difficult time, excruciating pain. Had gone through all sorts of stuff I won't bore you with. And it got to the point where another surgery was pending. And anyway, long, long, long accounts. This passage, was, you know my, my joke about morning by morning new verses I read? Well, this was a new passage I read. And verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4 blew my mind. Because I was focused on medications, on treatments, on doctors, on managing pain, on getting surgery to stop the pain. Now, this passage did not magically take my pain away. This passage didn't heal me. This passage didn't make it all feel fine. But I can tell you very confidently, drawing near, confidence in Him. He's my high priest. I'm going to come to you for mercy and grace. I'm not saying it made anything easier physically. I am telling you it recalibrated my head and my heart. And that's when you go into those situations and you, for example, look at your healthcare professional and says, maybe one of the reasons I'm going through this is God wants me to get off my hmm and say something to people about Christ. I've had the remarkable experience of praying with surgeons and anesthesiologists and nurse practitioners and pain management doctors who look at me like I'm from Mars. It's pretty fun. I mean, what are they going to say when they're about to cut on you and you say, can I pray for you before you cut on me? No. Remarkably, no one in a hospital has ever said no to me when I've said, can I pray for you? And I've had nurses weeping 
doctors who will later come to me and said, no patient has ever prayed for me. I don't understand it at all, men and women. I'm not saying that's the reason. But I'm saying the scripture tells us to hold fast our confession, to draw near, and you will receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Do you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do you believe he cares about you? Do you believe he knows your magnificent preoccupation? Do you believe he knows about your litigation? Do you believe he knows about the child, the children that are breaking your heart? Do you believe he knows about your husband or wife who is in a very bad place? Hold fast your confession. Draw near. Receive mercy and find grace in time of need. One of my dear friends who lives in D.C. and I were on the phone this week. His backstory is too long to tell you. I'm just going to say, I don't know how he's done it all these years. And he is fixed. He's got his hope pinned on these things. What he believed, what Christ has done, what he knows about Christ's word, he's drawing near to him. And he, he told me an analogy. He goes, Michael, when I'm in the word, when I'm in men's groups, when I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I do so much better week to week. Then when I get away by myself and start feeling sorry and start chasing after all the answers to the issues. This is shoe leather theology. It's very simple. The Jewish believers at this time that were hearing this, and I won't go too far into their story, what's going on with them, but they were going to go back to the law in some way because they didn't like the way things were working in their experience. And what the author is saying is you can't go back there's no, there's no system that's going to help you. You've got to go forward. And that's his fixation. Chapters 9 and 10, I would commend to any of you who grew up in a church with an Armenian uh, background, Catholics perhaps. I, you know my story, I'm Roman Catholic background. Some churches that taught you could lose your salvation. It's so important to go back to what the text is saying. And chapters 9 and 10 were so uh, seminal to me as I was doing the Bible church and the Catholic church thing for a number of years, trying to figure out what was right and who was wrong. And um, those chapters blew my mind that the efficacy of the work of Jesus Christ is completely sufficient, period. When we commemorate the Lord's Supper as we did last Sunday, that's a reminder that what he did is complete. We can't add to it. Nothing more can secure it. And it's a wonderful set of chapters. Chapter 11, of course, the so-called Hall of Faith, the fascinating chapter. Um, you could preach 15 sermons on it and barely scratch the surface. I love verse 38 where it's the phrase says, men of whom the world was not worthy. I love that verse. These were otherworldly people that lived on the planet and they followed Christ. They did His will. They obeyed Him. They were sawn into all the things they went through. Men of whom the world was not worthy. I have a couple of friends that I look at and I go, the world's not worthy of these men and women. pretty remarkable. Chapter 12, the so-called great cloud of witnesses. Let me read chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. And I'm going to suggest the word encumbrance here is probably the word doubt. 
Because all proceeding up to this in his contextual argument has been faith. It's impossible apart from faith to please God in chapter 11. So when he says this whole chapter, we've got this cloud of witnesses, we've got our foundation, we, we, we know our confession, we're supposed to draw near, we'll find help in time of need, this is our high priest, the whole argument, his theological argument, when he comes to this chapter, he's saying, set aside the doubt. I don't think it's wrong to think he's talking about sin or things that distract us, but I'm going to suggest one of the meanings, I would argue, set aside doubt, Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin, he differentiates those, the encumbrance and sin, which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, purpose clause, encouragement, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I remember many years ago reading about Texas A&M, and I'm sure other schools have done this with, with uh, football, NFL, I'm sure is way ahead of it, but they have glasses and they also have cameras that they can put inside a quarterback's helmet and they map the quarterback's eye movement. Why is that important? Well, you got a 300-pound lineman or a 300-pound linebacker coming at you at 150 miles an hour, and you're trying to look for a passing receiver, perhaps. What are you going to be looking at? How, what, what's one of the worst things, and I haven't watched much football this year, but when we watch football, what's one of the worst things that we want to see is some quarterback get completely blindsided and knocked over by some 300-pound train, right? And we just go, oh! And then, of course, we've got to watch it six more times in slow motion from four cameras because we're, you know, we're like demolition derby people. We like to see it. Um, if you're that quarterback, you can make armchair quarterback comments all day long, but you got an objective. you got to find out what's coming at you, but your objective is a receiver, right? So they actually track the eye, and then they can film it now, and then they show the athlete, they show the quarterback, this is what you're looking at, guy. And they're not trying to say, don't look at these adversarial people that want to break your neck. They're saying, you're distracted by the potentials. That's what your line is for. That's what their job is supposed to do. Your job is to get that ball into a receiver, and that's your objective. On what or on whom have you fixed your focus? What's your magnificent preoccupation? COVID? Vaccine? Well, I mean, Michael, if you don't pay attention to COVID, you might die. Well, that's true. Another cheery Michael uses the sermon. You're going to die. Next question. I'm not hastening it. I find it so disturbing that Christians are so divided and angry and ginned up on these issues. We, of all people, have the advocate, the great high priest. My point in all this is your magnificent preoccupation needs to take second, third, fifth place to the view of the supremacy 
of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If he can save you from eternal damnation, if he can forgive you of your sins, if he can promise you eternal life with him in the heavens, why in the world are we fixated on the here and now? Because we're human. Because we're people. We're fallen. We're selfish. We're self-protective. I'm not trying to wipe that away and make light of it. I'm just asking the same question I'm asking you. I'm asking me for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's a real hard phrase to choke down. Consider him who has endured such hostility. I find this a fascinating time to live. And I'm caught just like you are with friends who are completely anti-vax, haven't left the house since March, and people that are, you know, throw caution to the wind and go live your life. I tend to be on that side of the thing. You can be mad at me. I had COVID. Boring. Yeah, if you have high comorbidity issues, sure, be smart. That vaccine or not, that's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. That'd be a fool's errand. I'm not worried about repercussions. I'm just not going to tell you what to do. Talk to your doctors. I'm not a doctor, at least the kind I can't help in that arena. Um, I just don't understand why so many people are living in fear. Because you can live by faith. Sure, could something bad happen to you? Yes. Yes. A thousand times, yes. Could COVID be the end of you? Yes, it could be the end of you. So could a car accident on 65 tomorrow. When have we ever lived with such fear? It's just a simple point, a very relevant point. Are you going to live under fear and self-rule or by faith for the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe? That's what living by faith is. Confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen, the author of Hebrews says. I love that phrase. I hope for this. I've got confident assurance of this. I don't get to see all the in-between. But I know this. I made a confession. I'm fixed on that confession. I know this. He's my advocate. I know this. He's the perfect intermediary. I know this. He's the great high priest. You don't need an also ran. Finally, don't grow weary and lose heart. As I've told you the last few weeks, these are the things that the Lord is just annoying me with. <laughs> fight the good fight. Don't grow weary. Keep on going. Don't lose heart. Keep good courage. Yeah, 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 Lord. When do I get to quit? No, not yet. Okay. You there? You're an adult. You're an adult. You get to make your own decisions. Oh, praise the name of Jesus. My gaze is transfixed. Those were the words. On Jesus' face. 